0: a real investment show.
1: Michael Lee was joining us this morning. So, yeah, yesterday Mike, of course, um, you know, this inflation number came in even really hotter than a lot of analysts expected, well over 6% and, you know, this, you know, kind of immediately kind of shook the markets, of course. We saw the bond market sell off here a bit. Uh, stocks uh, were down. Of course, uh, technology stocks, which are the most sensitive to higher rates of inflation, they were down the most about 1.6 percent yesterday, a big, a fairly decent decline for, uh, for tech stocks yesterday. Uh, the question, though, now becomes really, you know, the Fed's got a potential choice here. The Fed keeps hoping this is transitory and that by sometime mid-next summer, uh, we should be back to norms in terms of inflation around that 2 percent target rate that they want. But Uh, You know, this inflation is starting to seem a whole lot more permanent than
0: transitory. You know, the problem they face is they're trying to predict the unpredictable. This isn't a typical economic inflation issue like we've seen in the past 20, 30 years. This, as we know, is largely a function of supply lines, supply line problems, shortages, shipping, trucking, you name it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a function of changing behaviors of consumers. First of all, you know, you go back a year and change ago and consumers were given a whole lot of money to spend right now. A lot of that that money is gone, but there is still some savings and consumer habits seem to be changing as well. So the Fed has very little effect on supply lines. They have very little effect on behaviors. And so what the Fed is banking on is that the supply line problems go away as, you know, kind of covid goes away. Right. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think we would tend to agree with them. Here's the wild card, though. The wild card is our behaviors are changing. So for instance, I I looked at the, I still get a physical newspaper, Lance, and I look at the uh, front page. I'm in a DC area, I get the Washington Post. Two of the three uh, articles above the fold, for our younger listeners, that means the top half, uh, were inflation articles and I forgot the titles, but one of them was kind of scary. So the problem with this is as the word inflation and as stories about inflation infiltrate, you know, traditional news, be it TV, be it newspaper, social media, Internet, just cocktail party conversation, sitting on the sidelines at a soccer game and people talking about inflation, the concern for inflation or inflation expectations rise. And that also changes our behavior maybe next time you go shopping you buy three widgets instead of two widgets or you know you kind of plan ahead and you start buying stuff and that starts having effect maybe you go into work and say hey boss prices are up six percent six point two percent according to the government i got a two percent raise you need to pay me more Mm -hmm. and because there's a worker shortage a lot of bosses are going to have to pay more and what are they going to do well, I'll pay Joe more, but then I'm gonna raise the price of widgets a little bit more to to basically pay Joe. And you get into this trap. And that's the risk. The risk is the Fed may be right that supply line shortages go away. And I say maybe because I don't think anyone really knows. This is incredible what is still going on at some of these ports and and throughout the world, not just in not just the one, not just the LA port that they talk about. Mm-hmm. So the Fed runs the risk that not only do the supply line problems not solve themselves as quickly as they think, but our behaviors around consumption and our expectations change. And they're already way behind the eight ball, right? CPI was six point two percent. Their objective is two percent. <laughs> and and I you know I think we both argue, Lance, that CPI is a very conservative measure, right? right. I don't think it's a stretch to say that inflation is running somewhere between 8 to 10% for the things that we buy and use.
1: Right. Well, you know, it's interesting just for this weekend's newsletter, I'm actually working on a chart because, you know, we take a look at CPI. And, and I've got a couple of comments about a couple of things you said here. Uh, you know, I'll come back to about um, the supply line shutdowns as well. But, you know... I, I ran a couple of charts on inflation over the weekend for the newsletter. One is the typical CPI, right, and then uh, then of course CPI core CPI, which is what you know we focus on now. That's X food, ga- you know, F- X energy and food, right? So that's that supposedly that strips out the volatility in inflation and really gets down to the core of what we pay for. But if you take a look at some of the high, you know some of the areas that are increasing the fastest, that's rent incomes and that is um, actual health care costs. Those are going up the fastest. So but those things, for most people, and this is I think an error that we make and when we take a look at core CPI, is the things that we pay for are the food and the energy, right? That's going to the store every week and maybe I need to buy three things rather than two things just to make sure I have them on the shelf just because in case they run out. Um, but our, our mortgage or our rent, either one, um, and our health care pretty much doesn't change because those are contractually obligated, you know, for a period of time. So in other words, if I if I have a mortgage payment, my mortgage payment doesn't change from month to month. It's the same mortgage payment for 30 years. If I go buy a new house, I may have to pay up for the house, which would be inflation. My mortgage might go up, but I'm not flipping my house every day. Healthcare you know, I pretty much have a set premium, and that changes once a year as I re-up for my, for my insurance, right? So those things really don't change. So if you strip those two things out—now, here was a shocking number for me, right? So let's look at CPI, X, healthcare and X home prices, or homeowner's equivalent rent. That inflation rate, which people are paying for every day, is 8.2%. So, again, to your point, Mike, it's not 6.2, it's 8.2, and that's really what people are dealing with. And, you know, when you start looking at the fact that wages aren't even keeping up with inflation, that's even a bigger problem for most.
0: Right. Well, here's – and we've talked about this. We did an article on this. uh, I think it was May, June, April, somewhere back in there. And we broke down inflation into its 300-ish components, right? Mm -hmm. And we showed that used car prices, energy prices – rental car prices, there were about six or seven big ticket, not not big items, but items that were driving the inflation rate. And at the same time, we showed that kind of the core. So if you kind of just look at those middle prices, you know, the, the other stuff that's not going up 10, 20, 30%, it was starting to go up a little, but it wasn't concerning. Now what we're finding is that median prices. So this is, we talk about the breadth of the market, we want to know what the you know, the stocks, not the not the fank stocks, but what are what are the smaller stocks doing? And that's what median inflation does. It looks at just kind of the core, the middle, not the ones dropping in price, not the ones rapidly rising, but the middle. And that's rising now at the fastest rate since the early 1980s. And that's right. So that's telling you that the prices of everything are starting to increase. And it's not just used cars and it's not used cars we can account for. Right. That's mm-hmm. an easy narrative to say, OK, used cars are going up because there's a chip shortage there are no new cars. No one's turning in their used cars. Right. That's easy. That's simple. But when you start talking about 70 items, right, things that we use every day, that's a very different story. And the Fed, you know, this goes back to why is the Fed dragging their feet? What are they doing? They they see this and they may, you know, they're kind of betting, like you said, that this problem is supply line, it'll go away. And again, it could be, but they got a lot on the table right now that well, they're betting on, but, and they, know, they're not sitting on a pair of aces.
1: Right. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, you, you know we keep talking about the fact that, well, these supply lines have clear themselves up and, you know, it's just because of the pandemic. Well, Look, 80% of the population-ish, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but you know, roughly 80% of the population has been vaccinated in some form, either one shot or two shots, whatever. It's it's a big number. Um, and again, I may, be, I, may, I may be wrong on the number, but you, you get my point is that a lot of people have been vaccinated. People are going back to work. People are getting out. I mean, look, we just had this Astral concert fiasco. I mean, you know, 50,000 people at the concert. People are going back out into the world. So, you know, it's a function that, you know, it's hard to start to you know keep pinning this on, you know the COVID issue because we are moving past that economically speaking, and you know the issue really comes down to it's really a lack of truckers and and drivers willing to take stuff off the ports and and bottlenecks at these ports. You know production is coming back online this is not something that that may resolve itself in the short term it's not like magically we're going to wake up tomorrow and have you know an extra 50,000 truckers hitting the road it, you know they're not all sitting at home right now they're working so i'm not so sure that this idea that it's transient simply because of of trucking problems is is you know going to turn out to be the case in other words what you know you can potentially make the case for is this is going to last a lot longer than what the fed expects and and, and something you and i've talked about before is probably that you know the fed is very, as you just said the fed is very behind the curve here on hiking rates but the really the only reason they don't want to hike rates here is because they don't want to disrupt the stock market because again if they have a a, a big drop in the stock market because they start aggressively hiking rates to combat you know inflation then they've got a loss of consumer confidence which consumer confidence is already weak corporate ceo confidence is already declining you know They're really in a very bad spot between trying to support asset prices to keep confidence up and this problem of inflation, which is now impacting consumers head on. It really kind of looks like the Fed's trapped and they've got a kind of a no-win situation here.
0: Right. And that my article that we published yesterday discusses just that. So maybe when we come back from the break, we can kind of walk through that article a little bit and explain why we think there's some ulterior ulterior motive. <laughs> ulterior motives. Yes. Ulterior.
1: All right. We'll be back after the break as uh, we do. Uh, we will get into the stock market, the Fed's propensity to support asset prices, even though. And I've got an article coming up on this here in the next couple of days. The Fed has already acknowledged that valuations are a problem. The question is, is can they do anything about it? We'll talk about that with Michael Leibowitz right after the break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Royce Science Roberts. Michael Leibowitz joining me, talking a little bit about inflation. Of course, that is the big topic from yesterday a uh, big surge in inflation on a year-over-year basis and the hope is of course that uh, as everybody's hoping is that inflation is transitory and magically it will just go away here shortly and we'll all be back to normal at you know precisely two percent inflation because that's what the fed wants to have and you know what's interesting is is that the federal reserve actually believes they can actually control inflation or they have any influence over it <laughs> through <laughs> through their actions. Uh, and basically, we go back in history and find out more than not that they're the cause of problems in the economy rather than the solution to it. And uh, just a function of of financial mistakes all going all the way back to the early 80s, um, you know, through their actions. So, you know, it is interesting, though, that in 2010, and we've talked about this on the show before, Ben Bernanke made a very interesting statement in the process of launching the second round of quantitative easing. So stepping back a second, um, in 2008, we had the financial crisis. Then, then in early, uh, really kind of late 2008, early 2009, we started the first round of this new monetary policy process called quantitative easing. And this was a fancy term for basically the government monetizing debt. And, and this was you know, kind of the, the new intervention. And that was to be about a trillion dollars worth of activity. And it was scheduled to end. It had a, a scheduled start date and an end date. It was scheduled to end in June of 2009. And so when we got to that point and quantitative easing started to roll off, all of a sudden the market started to decline again. And the markets were down 10 15%. And, and the, that was when Ben Bernanke came out and said, look, we need another round of quantitative easing. And the reason we're doing this is to help spur asset prices because higher asset prices increase consumer confidence. And if consumers are confident, they'll go out and spend more money, and that helps economic growth. And this was the first moment where there was a verbal acknowledgement of a third mandate. Now, the two mandates of the Federal Reserve are making sure there's not a runaway inflation and making sure we have full employment. That's their that's their congressional mandate. Well, now they added this third one. This was a new verbal acknowledgment of this third mandate which was to support asset prices. Well, here we are, you know, 12 years later roughly, and markets are, you know, at all-time highs and we are now in the process of doing 120 billion dollars a month to help support asset prices. And the Fed is now finally acknowledging that, well, maybe valuations are a bit excessive here, but we're not going to do anything about it at this point because we still need to maintain these monetary policies to help support asset prices. Now, this is the point we left off with. The biggest problem for the asset markets is higher interest rates. You start hiking interest rates, as I said early in the show this morning, You know, in a highly leveraged economy, interest rates have everything to do with outcomes and it has everything to do with economic growth. So hiking rates does exactly what you would expect it to do. It will slow economic growth. If you slow economic growth, earnings slow. If earnings slow, well, valuations and overvalued stocks become a problem. Mike, um, so summing all that up and and coming to you, this is kind of what you touched on in your article yesterday, and this is why we're talking about the Fed being in a bit of a trap here, is they're really kind of caught in between this issue of hiking rates to, to slow down inflation but if they do that, they're gonna have a problem in the stock market.
0: Exactly. And you know, let's kind of look at their two mandates. It's stable prices and maximum employment. Right. We don't have to discuss prices. We we all know they're anything but stable, right? CPI is running six percent, and even the Fed, you know, even Powell is telling you that prices are elevated and may stay that way for a while. Mm-hmm. Right. So they clearly should be doing work to control prices. By work, I mean raising interest rates and stopping QE yesterday, right? But they lean on maximum employment. We're not at maximum employment yet. And when you look at the traditional measures of the unemployment rate, we're pretty much there, right? Right. It's 4.6. The average over the last five years was 4.4. It's not quite to where we were at late 2019, but if you go back and look at history, we're well below average, and we're at the average of the last five years, right? But but Powell will say, well, you need to look at alternative measures because there's nothing usual, you know, normal about what's going on, and, and that's a fair point. So the BLS also publishes the U6, which includes all the people unemployed in the traditional unemployment rate, plus those that are disparaged, those that are working part-time and want full-time jobs, And that number is actually below the average of where it was in the five years leading up to uh, the pandemic, right? So by that measure, and again, it's also at the lows of the last 20 plus years. So by those kind of more traditional measures, employment is back to maximum levels. He likes to lean on the participation rate. So how many people are working out of the entire population? And if you look at it, he's correct that it, it has dropped and it's only recovered about halfway from where it was the problem with that is that like i said we were talking about consumer behaviors employee behaviors have changed too many people want to stay at home and take care of their kids it's too expensive to have childcare and they they have done the math and they are willing to leave the workforce to take care of their kids a lot of older people have decided to retire right? They, they were planning on it anyway. Maybe they sped it up a year or two. They don't want to go back to the office and they're comfortable, right? We also have talked about what's called the quits rate. So how many people are quitting jobs because they think they can get a better job, higher paying job, whatever it may be, better location, whatever they're looking for? Well, that rate is up 0.6%. So if you just subtract that from unemployment, we're well below averages. But if you factor all that in the participation rate is probably exactly where it was, if not even slightly better than before the pandemic. So I think it's my opinion is that we have maximized employment. And then you just look at like how many jobs or how many, uh, jobs are available versus the number of people unemployed. And it's, we're approaching two to one right? This is about as robust a workforce as we can have. So so the question is, what is the Fed doing? And Lance, you talked about this. They've created their third mandate, not Congress, but them, financial stability, right? And to them, that means higher asset prices. But what they fail to understand is that things may seem very stable right now, but they're actually incredibly unstable because valuations are over twice- anything that's normal, right? We have valuations that are in line with 1999 and above that of 1929, right? So, so, you know, every day we go on, oh, the markets are great. They're going up. They're very stable. Everything seems hunky-dory, but that's not the fact they're creating an incredible amount of instability in the markets. Again, prices are very are running really hot right now and employment is maximized. So Again, this all comes back to why are they possibly dragging their feet so much to not to, to stop raising, to not raise rates and to reduce QE. And I think the answer is they don't want to deal with that. With the financial markets, and what's going to happen when stocks, when when stocks reprice to normal levels, when bond yields reprice to normal levels, and all other assets, including housing as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and again, you know, this is one of the interesting things I, I think, and this goes back to you know they've had repeated attempts at this over the last you know really decade and and you know we go back to 2018 and and you know the Federal Reserve had started in 20 really 2016 starting to taper their balance sheet. Um, you know had bal- had gotten down to where they were just rolling over maturing bonds. They weren't expanding their balance sheet but they weren't really reducing it either. And then 2018 they actually started tapering off their balance sheet as and and, and were hiking interest rates. so they were actually removing that monetary policy you know, from the system. And of course, you know, in September, they go, well, we're not anywhere near the neutral rate. The market declines by 20%. And by December, they're talking about, okay, we're not going to hike rates anymore. And, and, you know, we're you know going to get this thing straightened out. And it was in June of the next year, they went back to zero in interest rates because of, of the markets. So, you know, they keep getting themselves in this position. And I think they're doing it backwards because the first thing they do is they take away the quantitative easing, which is supporting asset prices. And then they go, okay, we're going to take away that part, and then we're going to hike interest rates. Well, what they should be doing is keeping the $120 billion a month going right now, hike interest rates, and allow that monetary liquidity to support asset prices while they're hiking interest rates and trying to quell the inflationary problem. It seems to me they do this backwards. Hike interest rates first, and then take away the monetary punch bowl. And then by that time, hopefully, stocks can kind of figure it out and and kind of reprice themselves gradually rather than having a shock revaluation like you had in 2018.
0: Right. I would actually argue that the problem with raising rates is that there is such an incredible amount of leverage in the system, especially at an institutional Mm -hmm. level, Yep. and all that leverage is predicated on zero rates. They pay nothing to borrow money. So taking on leverage is very easy. So as soon as you start raising rates... You you start increasing the price, the cost of leverage, mm-hmm. and that they'll decrease leverage, which is for selling. So, you know, they're really trapped here, Lance. Well, you know and
1: look, and this and this goes to the whole idea of, you know, I was reading an interesting article about, you know, talking about leverage. Uh, interesting article yesterday you know this this whole idea we need to tax the rich more right because they just make way too much money take a look at Elon Musk you know Elon Musk can't sell it you know he had to go to Twitter to get permission to sell his shares because if he was just selling them on his own he would tank the stock everybody lose confidence oh Elon Musk must be losing confidence in Tesla because he's selling his shares so he goes very public to sell his shares um, and he says, look, I've got to sell shares in order to pay taxes. Uh, well, if he doesn't take a salary or a bonus, where is he getting his money? You'll be surprised how this works out for a lot of uber-rich people. We'll talk about that right after the break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show this morning. So big news uh, earlier this week was Elon Musk going on to Twitter asking, you know, Twitter, Basically, and he had almost four million responses saying, hey, would it be OK if I sold 10 percent of my shares um, as an individual? I don't take a salary or a bonus from from work. And, you know, all my wealth is basically in shares. And if you want me to pay taxes and of course, this was kind of a jab at, you know, the the idea of the Biden administration to tax capital gains and to really go after these rich people because, you know, they don't pay any taxes. There's a reason they don't pay taxes, and Elon Musk is a great example of why, as an individual, he doesn't pay taxes. All his wealth, as he says, and he's correct about this, all his wealth is in his stock, right, Uh, the stock of his company. And he doesn't take a salary, and he doesn't take a bonus from a company. So how does he live? Well, as most of these uber-rich individuals do that have publicly traded company stock— They go to the bank and they borrow the money, so they're more than a bank. Look, if you're if you're Elon Musk and you walk into the bank of J.P. Morgan and and you know or you know Wells Fargo, the criminal enterprise, whatever, um, they'll be well. They are more than they will bend over backwards to loan you millions of dollars against your company stock for three percent interest or two percent interest or whatever the going rate is. So. These very rich people, they buy houses and cars and jets and all this other type of stuff on the loans against their company' stock. Because if they sell their company stock, they've got to pay what? 20% in taxes on, on those gains. And so this idea that you know, and, and this is one, and let me back up one second, the re, and this is why they don't pay any income taxes because the loans aren't income. They're loans. So there's no taxes due on that income right because it's not income it's a, it's a, they've borrowed the money against their company stock now at some point down the road they'll sell their company stock pay off the loans and then it's all fine and dandy but this is but what was interesting for elon musk is that he went to twitter said hey look i don't take any salary and and, and the government's talking about taxing my capital gains so kind of he was actually kind of asking permission hey would it be okay if i sell my stock because as an insider of the company, then think about Jeff Bezos, think about all, all the other you know, heads of these companies that are highly compensated through stock options and stock grants. If they start selling their shares and just kind of behind the scenes, again, the market looks at that as like, oh my gosh, what's Elon Musk thinking? What's Jeff Bezos thinking? And they, they must think there's something wrong with the company. And then everybody starts selling their shares and the stock price goes down markedly, which you know the owners of these companies don't want because they're compensated by their stock. They build their wealth through rising stock option compensation as the prices go up. So what was what was brilliant about Elon Musk asking Twitter if he could sell uh, sell some shares is that he got approval. So it's not that you know he's selling shares because he thinks something's wrong with the company. He asked permission. This was something that's never been done before by a CEO of a company. <laughs> And uh, four million people said, "Sure, go ahead and and, and sell some shares." Uh, stock was down, you know, probably ten percent day before yesterday as uh, both him and his brother sold five billion dollars worth of shares. So now Elon Musk has five billion dollars cash. Now he'll pay a billion of that in taxes, but he'll have four billion in cash. Now you can't really look. Four billion is not that much money. You really can't live a lifestyle on four billion. But you know, hey. It's it's some left pocket change if you need it, Mike. Your thoughts?
0: I'd like to try. I'd like to try to live on a billion or two, <laughs> see if I can make it. I, I don't. I don't know. With you know, my wife's
1: shopping uh, bonanza on Christmas trees this year. I don't know if I, I need at least two billion.
0: Right. <laughs> but 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 Lance, don't you agree that there's a problem? It's not. It's not. I don't think that collecting taxes on unrealized gains is the answer. But shouldn't Elon Musk be taxed in some way, right? I know he'll get taxed ultimately, or his estate will get taxed. Mm-hmm. But why is it that the working man, almost everyone, pays taxes on their income and Elon Musk and others pay zero taxes? Shouldn't they pay taxes when they receive options or they receive shares? Well, this is, and that's a great question,
1: right? Um, you know, look, as we always say, you know, what's always important to remember is like, if you don't like the game, right don't hate the player change the game and you know the tax code is the problem the tax code says and classifies what income is and since the mid-90s when we reinstated stock options and and look uh stock up you know stock buybacks by corporations those were illegal until 1990 um and now we've reinstated stock buybacks. We've, you know, and then when Bill Clinton came in and said, "Hey, you know, we need to to rein in CEO compensation." Now this is an important point to, to point to what Mike is saying. Prior to 1998, most CEOs were compensated through salary and 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 bonuses. Right, so they were paying taxes. And then in the late 1990s, Bill Clinton said, well, <clears throat> you know, we're going to limit CEO pay to a million dollars. And then this is when Wall Street really came around saying, OK, fine, limit them to a million dollars in, in, uh, in income. We'll just do it all through stock options and grants. And that was the workaround for compensating CEOs to a tremendous degree, much more so than actual pay. And if you had left things alone There's a cap to how much income can be paid out to a CEO because it's what happens at the bottom line. It's the cash that's left over, right? So with with stock options, though, you can create vast amounts of wealth because of the leverage that is imputed inside of a stock option on stock prices. So CEOs got vastly wealthy on the stock options, which would have never occurred under a normal salary scheme that we had. But, the, you know, previously to 1998. So, you know, the best of intentions to try to fix this compensation, you know, boondoggle we've got continues to make things worse. So now we're going, OK, well, now they're all compensated in stock. They're vastly wealthy. They're not paying any taxes. Well, you know, this is what you did to yourself, you know pay a salary <laughs> have the board of approve you know the board of, of shareholders you know approve these salaries for CEOs and and compensation will come down naturally but to your point Mike now I I, I digressed but to your point <laughs> yeah sure tax the uh, the stock options you know at issue date
0: here's the other point the other consequence is that you're now paying and you have been for 20 years 20 plus years paying CEOs and shares right their full, their only incentive right now is to get the share price up, which is fine, right?
1: Right, which is why 40% if, of stock of reported earnings are fudged by CFOs and CEOs of corporations.
0: Right, right, right. If your goal is to get them up by increasing your earnings and productivity and making a bigger company, that's great. That, in theory, in textbooks is how it's supposed to work. Yeah. But in the real world, it works by jawboning the markets, by buying back your own stock, and doing whatever it takes to get the stock higher today and tomorrow and a lot of times at the expense of 10 years from now
1: right and then look let's, let's be honest the fed's been a crucial backbone in making sure that we inflate asset prices you know and, right. and and we talked about this previously look if you left the market to its own devices the market would be around twenty eight hundred not forty seven hundred the the differential is stock buybacks right. and you know that has been supported by low interest rates and that's also been supported by massive amounts of monetary liquidity tesla wouldn't be trading at thousand dollars a share you know, had we not had all this liquidity injection by the Fed, it's just uh, and really even by the government, these fourteen hundred dollar checks, the, the the stimulus you know pumped into the market last year, has led to this low interest rates. It led I've led to a massive amount of leverage uh, by investors into the stock market as well. So again, you know, we're all sitting around complaining about making these CEOs uber wealthy, but it's the very policies that are run by the Fed and the government and and the markets that are creating that problem. So. You know, again, right. in, uh, in, you know, what are we trying to? What are we really trying to accomplish here? If we really want to accomplish something, let's fix the markets. The markets will fix CEO compensation directly.
0: Right, and this is when I was talking about financial stability. This is the instability that is happening right now. Right, it's what you just said. Mm-hmm. The true value without buybacks is what twenty eight hundred. Yep, and we're at 4, yeah, 46, 4, for, forty six hundred ish. Yeah, forty six, forty seven hundred. It's forty. It's
1: forty percent difference.
0: Right, there's your instability. Right, Last time we had instability like this was the 1920s when buybacks were legal. Same thing happened, right? If we go back to August of 29, everyone would say, oh, the system's great, it's so stable, stock prices go up every day, everything's wonderful. We've reached a permanently high plateau. Exactly, and that's exactly <laughs> what didn't happen, um, right? And that's when buybacks were banned, after 1929, and then they came back to life. These things came back to life, at the request of
1: corporations and really driven by wall street you know wall right. street was demanding these things so you know this is and again you know we keep focusing on the wrong issues um you know we keep focusing on the you know well you know these rich people look okay let's take away all of jeff bezos wealth let's take away all of elon musk wealth and let's pay off the debt with it you won't even notice a bump on right. the, on the, on our you know national debt that's out there that we've reduced it by and then who are you going to go get money from right now you right. you've, you've wiped out all the wealth of all the rich people in the world so where else are you going to get wealth from and now they have to close down their businesses because they have no money so now we've lost all those jobs who's going to create the jobs right and now once you've taken away the incentive to take risks to create jobs and be an inventor and be an innovator in the economy then what do you have you know and this is this is the problem again you know, you can drive the roots of inequality all the way back to Wall Street, which is where it all begins. And and, you know, instead of f- focusing and fixing Wall Street, we keep trying to fix the end result of, the, of what Wall Street has done, which is trying to tinker around with tax codes and, you know, trying to fix a little problem here or there. But it all, you know, the cancer starts at Wall Street and we keep trying to cure the symptoms of it. So, you know, that's that's the problem. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. That is The Real Investment Show. We'll be back t- uh, tomorrow morning for can- for uh, Financial Fitness Friday with Richard and Danny. And then make sure that you're registered for this weekend's Candid Coffee. We're going to talk about markets, money, outlooks for 2022, and what we expect to happen. That's Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. That's Candid Coffee. I'll be there as well. So sign up at the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the
1: internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com.